So here we are, Proverbs 31, quick review. We're looking at verses 10 forward. This is the part about the woman of valor. The first nine verses are about the man of valor, the, the noble king. And so, remember, Aleph starts with the word woman. And so we are reminded that she is, the woman of, of valor is worth far more than rubies. And then we are given lots of reasons why. One of them being the heart of the husband safely trusts in her, and he won't have a lack of spoil. He won't have a lack of gain or spoil. Spoils are talked about, and what we're going to see is this idea of spoil points to the warrior and the idea of capturing gain. And so we're reminded there, the, the verse we're about to look at today that will be our first one to focus on talks about the idea of capturing prey, so hunting. These are very male-oriented activities, the idea of spoil of war and capturing prey in a hunt. And so again, this is a very intentional poetic form that's meant to draw attention to the activities of the woman of valor like she is a heroic figure. And so this activity, and I told you before also that you see a similar thing occur when, I can't remember if it's Rebecca, I think it's Rebecca, she's the one who provides the servant of Abraham with the water for her camel, for the camels and for the, the caravan that's there. So you have those two similar things where you have the heroic poem, the heroic example given, and it's reminiscent of the heroism that is displayed in the activity of the men of valor or the mighty men. So uh, this idea here that she is she gains spoil. There's no lack of spoil, no lack of gain. Verse 12, she does him good and not evil all the days of her life. And so we talked about how the definition of good is very important. And she studies that, studies good and evil. She's able to display that she is trustworthy by doing him good and not evil all the days of her life. So the trust is well placed. So women, you need to know the good of your husband. And that aligns very well uh, with what we've studied in Titus 2. And so we talked about not being a life-stealing shrew, not being a fool who doesn't know the difference between good and evil, not being a martyr who makes doing good into this this thing that is harmful to self, but instead a life-giving wise encourager, a holy nurturer, an effective helper. And so we looked at Ephesians 5.22-33, through 33, talk about the husband's sacrificial service and how the wife is to submit, to be washed by the word, to work effectively with the husband. And we looked at Titus 2, verses 1-5, to 5, but the older women, those who are more mature in the faith, they are to be priestly, not slanderers, not enslaved to wine, doctors of beauty. And so, doctors, what are you to teach your pupils? You are to teach them to be husband lovers, child lovers, prudent, holy, workers at home, good, and obedient to their own husbands. And I encourage you to memorize that. I, mean, I like quirked the eyebrow as well, tried to draw the best attention to it I could. Women, worth your attention to get that. You either are trying to be this or you're trying to teach it. Verse 13. She seeks wool and flax. We talked about that word seeking being a diligent selection. The investigation into. The consideration of the qualities. The looking for the opportunity to get it. So we talked about how that's sort of the process of looking for value and developing it. And then the willing working of the hands. The, she works with her glad palms. Right? This full embrace of the material to work with it. Page 3. 
She's like the merchant ship. She brings her food from afar. So we talked about the John Robbins series on biblical economics, available at trinityfoundation.org. Put in your uh, promo code, and you'll get it for free, just like if you didn't. There's no promo code. It's free. Go get it. And Economics for Everybody, which I told you to go buy, and so if you've already bought it, great. But I'm trying to look for a way to get a copy for every household right now because it's such an easy thing to be able to look at and to draw stuff from. So um, just uh, in that process, looking for those faiths helping me with that. So that, pro- that, that series does an excellent job of laying out the economic principles from the Bible in a very easy-to-understand way. It's attractive for children. Um, but the John Robbins series you can listen to while driving. And unless you're overwhelmed by Eurekas, you probably won't get in an accident. Whereas if you try to watch Economics for Everybody, you may. So don't do that. Verse 15. She also rises while it is yet night. So here's the new one. And provides food for her household and a portion for her maidservants. So here's what this is saying. The language here, she also rises while it is yet night. That is supposed to be reminiscent of the idea of the lioness. The, the rising while it's night, there's, this, there's a nocturnal danger of, of, of lions. They move at night, and they are the great fearsome beasts. They're the strongest speed combination. They were the most strong while fast. Right? Bears are terrifying, and if they get going, they can chase you down. You might worry that your horse can't get away. But if you can move around, they lumber Right? There's an ability to hide and to use obstacles and things that are not the same. A lion can outmaneuver you and outrun you. And so there is a danger of the lion that is greater than other beasts. If you have to just stand your ground, the bear is more terrifying. But if you are dealing with trying to get away, the lion is more terrifying. And so she is reminiscent of a lioness. She rises while it is yet night. To do what? And provides taref. She provides prey for her household. That's the idea. It's just food, it's prey. So this, this, what is the prey? Well, the prey is food. It's things for consumption. But she's getting up and she's hunting for what's necessary for her family while it's still night. And she has a portion for her maidservants. So you think about, if you've ever seen how lions hunt, lions hunt and they bring back the food to their pride. And there's a dividing up. And so this dividing up of the food, this sharing in the food, is such that it's not just enough so that the top persons get food. There's a portion for the servants. There's a portion for those who are lower in the household hierarchy. And so this is the ability to meet payroll. It's the quota. It's the ability to get the food, the portion that's necessary for the daily. And it was common at this time for the payment of wages daily if it was a hired servant. If it was a household servant, then it was more likely that there would be far less frequent wages. Those wages were typically, there's the daily apportionment, but there was also perhaps something else that was a far less common payout, something at the time of harvest or whatever else. So you'd have sort of the you're provided for, and then when there's a big boon, you can participate in that to some extent. Um, so those were the, sort of the different ways of, of payment at the time. But day laborers, people were not hired typically to be long-term employees. They were hired and given as a daily wage, or they were made long-term employees, but they were made a part of the house. 
And so the idea of a person who is a maid servant, this is somebody who's a part of the house. So, also she rises is the way that the, the verse really goes. So the also, we last saw the idea that she's like a merchant ship. She brings in resources. And we saw just before that um, the idea that she willingly looks for work and then accomplishes work. And so we have the continuation on that theme. This rising to work, to hunt, point 27, she talks, she stalks and brings home the prey. She brings home the bacon to hit payroll for her maidservants, early rising to prepare and to organize. So this is in contrast to somebody who has lots of resources and then just consumes. Lots of resources and sitting around being served. This is not an aristocratic, rent-taking woman. She is a capitalist. She's industrious. She seeks to have the resources for leisure, but then when she has leisure, defined as free time, not necessary for production for immediate consumption. Right? She has free time available to choose what she does with it. And in having that free time available to choose what she does with it, she then organizes her resources and time to do higher work. She organizes her resources and time to do higher work. Now, this can be entrepreneurial culture creation, writing a book, creating music, creating some other piece of art. If you're trying to create something that displays the glory of God by manifesting Christian culture, that would be an example of that kind of work. Organizing labor, the rising early, providing a portion to accomplish more than if she had no resources. This is dominion with leverage. So, look at the bold there. This is the life of work with servants in order to get more work done. This is not the life of having servants in order to avoid work. Now, you all maybe have become accustomed enough to me now to know where I'm going to go with this. Because you go, one, you all think you don't have servants. What's my answer? What's the thing? You know I'm going to tell you. First of all, you all know that you hire lots of people to do lots of things. And you have machines. And soon you'll be replaced with AI. No, I don't believe that part. So, she's seeking to have servants in order to get more work done than she could by herself. She's seeking to increase productivity, not avoid work. Servants are a way of getting to do work in less time. Think about this, Proverbs 12.9. Better is the one who is lightly esteemed but has a servant than he who honors himself but lacks bread. Okay, the honoring of self with resources as opposed to the using of resources to get more productivity out. That's similar also to the idea that your field's in order first, then your house. Right? We see that in Proverbs as well. The productive, then the enjoyment. So, first, or page four. This idea of using resources to increase work as opposed to reducing work, why would one live this way? Well, if you believe that you should glorify God as a good life, grow in the knowledge of God, apply the law in order to encourage your own growth in the knowledge of God, and teach others, because when you teach others, you teach yourself. Studying, you teach. And teaching, you study. So there is this learning process. It pushes you to greater consistency as you have to figure out how to explain things. 
This is the good life. It's a life that increases that responsibility. So having servants creates work if you want to manage them well. One of the things that happens sometimes when you have great aristocratic estates where there's sort of this law order that allows for extracting wealth in serfdom or whether it's a socialistic central planning where people are just forced to do work by the course of power of the state and you have these bureaucracies, what tends to happen is if somebody goes in and tries it all, they can just find layers and layers of waste. Right? Think about what Elon Musk did when he went in to Twitter. He found like 80% of the people. Right? And the, the general effect has been there's not a change in service. Why is that? Cheap capital destroys creativity. When you can just get people to give you money to not have to actually do anything, like the, the big tech boom, right? The big tech boom is you have a bunch of cheap money where people are just using it to do stupid stuff, social experiments, whatever. And as a result, there's no cost in their minds to the money. That's a similar effect to slavery or taxation or aristocratic order where you have serfs, is you have this, just this income that comes in whether you're productive or not. And so the law order of the private property order pushes people to, to be creative. So the danger, if you inherit a bunch of wealth, and you try to avoid work, the ballooning of the consumption of money that occurs when you do not manage is enormous. And you can lose a huge multi-generational wealth jackpot very fast by incompetent management and by the increased consumption that can come from people who are just seeking to leech off of it. That can occur in a lifetime. That can occur across generations. And so the goal is to be a productive person who manages wealth well to get more done, and then hands off management more and more to children so they can learn how to accomplish more with resources. So having servants, when you try to manage them, it creates work if you want to manage them well. You can get a lot more done, but you're still going to have work to do. And if you do manage people well, you can get far more done than if each of you worked separately. Why is that? Because we are not just robots. And so often our failure to work comes from a sense of a lack of appreciation, boredom, loneliness, the feeling like we don't have enough input coming in. Right? If you have two or three people together that really like something and are working on the same thing, they can get a lot more done than those two or three people locked in separate rooms, not interacting about it. There is a way in which there is a feeding off of each other, an encouragement in it. And so this is why you think about the relational duties of being prophets, priests, and kings, or prophetesses, priestesses, and queens. There is a leadership value there. And women, the role of leadership is in building out the estate. There's a leadership capability in the estate. You manage resources, you manage children, you manage servants. And so... I have laid out here on this page a lot of information about serving as regards being a prophetess, priestess, or queen. I'm not going to go through all of it here. But what I want to point out is the fact that, first, if you have children, it is your duty to put them to profitable use. And children, if you think that avoiding work is going to make you happy, you are wrong. 
you will find that having profitable work to do makes you less bored, feel more productive, makes it so that you sleep better, rest better, enjoy your blessings more, you enjoy recreation more, you will find your sleep sweeter, your food more delightful, and you will find the free time that you have to be all the better. Being able to be a productive part of the household is very important for your own happiness. So parents, remember that. If you want your children to not be miserable in sin and to be productive, you need to draw them into chores quickly. Children, if you do not have chores, I am telling you, if you have any respect for me, any respect for my wisdom at all, I'm telling you, children, ask your parents for chores that you can do. If you don't have chores, and if you do have chores, do them well and seek to take on more. You will find that the blessing you receive from your parents is far greater than if you just let it be. So that's a part of the queenly management, which is the focus of Proverbs 31. And the relational peace interacting and the teaching peace of the prophetess, those are elements of that leadership of having a team, including children. And if you want to increase the management of others, manage yourself well. Now, jump down to point 32 on page 5. You can't buy time. But you can buy other people's time. And you can buy time-saving activities, devices, whatever. And you are all paying people lots of money to serve you in lots of ways. You have subscriptions where people are being paid to provide you with a regular steady flow of entertainment. You have things where people are providing you with all sorts of things. And here's what managing well, rising early to bring home the bacon and to make sure that you can pay the proper maidservants to do the proper work looks like. It looks like carefully examining your budget and looking to see where are you throwing money away. Is it lawful to have anything that you enjoy? (laughs) Yes, there are things you can enjoy that are lawful to have. And so the point is not that you should get rid of anything that you enjoy, right? There's a legitimate pursuing of the enjoyment of things with money. But the question is, are there any places where there's thoughtless or wasteful consuming of resources? Or are these things filthy, right? You can have filthy things that you enjoy. But if you're watching stupid shows, listening to evil podcasts, uh, whatever, whatever the thing is, if there's some sort of filthy type of entertainment, Obviously, this applies to men too. But something that is not useful, not healing, not God-glorifying, not holy, don't throw your money away on it. And so, look for the way to accumulate resources by taking the current resources you have and making sure that you are not putting them into useless things. Then you should consider... What are you spending your time on that is not an efficient use of your time? Are there things that you do where you think this is productive, but in reality you could pay somebody else, a launderer, a whatever, right? Is there any activity that you, you have, landscaping activity, whatever, where you go, here's a constant maintenance thing or a, or a new project, and I can do this and it's going to cost me such and such hours, or I can pay somebody else to do it for this amount of money. 
it would be better for you if you have a more productive activity to spend the money, save the time, and do the more productive work. So you evaluate your dollars, where are they going, and you evaluate your time, where is it going. Over and over again, on about a quarterly basis, I take time. I just spent time with my wife. We stopped and thought about what are we doing. And I always find that there is so much ineffective use of my own time. So if you're not regularly culling your time for how you're using it to get rid of things that are not the most useful and culling your budget looking for things that are not the most useful, you will dissipate your energies and time and money. So effective management is often the reconcentration, the reconcentration of things and considering how do I spend my dollars and my minutes to glorify the Lord God Almighty and maximize the return on them both. Other people who are in more need of money than you are people who you have opportunity to save a lot of time at low cost. And you do that with lots of things. There are lots of things you pay for. Generally, for example, most of you are not farming, except, of course, for the marshes. And so what we find is that most of us have determined to pay somebody else for food production. Sometimes we're paying the marshes. And so in doing that, what we see is that we're trying to have a division of labor to save ourselves time. You do that with lots of things. Not many of you are making your own clothes, I imagine. Some of you are. And so the idea that you can divide labor, you can pay people to do things, you're already doing it for lots of things, be intentional about it. Be intentional about it. You have something you hate, it takes a lot of time. Why have you not found somebody you can pay to do that yet? Somebody else doesn't hate it. Or they like money more than they hate that. So you think about those things. And you find productive things to do. You don't go and waste the time that you save. You rise early and get the portion together for your maidservants. Alright. That principle of thinking about the concentration of revenues and thinking about the concentration of time and how to deal with those things I would encourage you all to spend significant time on that. And women, you control most of the spending in your households, and so you should think about it carefully. Verse 16. Zain. She considers a field and buys it. From her profits, she plants a vineyard. Okay, so she considers. This is Zoma. Actually, it's Zama. So, Zama, she develops a plan, is really what's being said here. She considers, she plans, she gives careful thought to a field. She, if you walk around and have the perspective of production, and you think about anything around you, any asset around you is basically for sale. The question is the price. And there are some things that people are trying to sell. And you think about other people have money and they don't know what to do with it and they're trying to figure out how to get other people to pay them to use it. Right? It's called interest. Right? Interest is just rent on money. You want money to use? Someone will rent it to you. They will let you pay interest on it. That's renting money. And so you ask yourself the question, if everything around you is some sort of an asset that's generally for sale in terms of the material things, and you are thinking about how to make use of the things around you in order to make a profit, 
one of the things you're going to start to learn is what are the things that people will lend you money for? Real estate is, and almost always in the history of man, has been considered something that's easy to borrow against. Why? Typically it's hard to hide. If somebody wants to repossess it, they know where it is. Right? If you don't want your house to be repossessed, well, too bad. Because they know where you live. So, if you have a piece of property, there is an ability to borrow against that property more easily than basically any other asset. There are other assets that you can borrow against. You can borrow against businesses, you can borrow against cars, you can borrow against machinery, there's all sorts of stuff. But the process of buying things involves pulling together financing. And so if you're walking around thinking about how do I build wealth, you're going to learn about the process of buying things that make money. You're going to learn about the process of buying things that makes money. So you're going to consider, you're going to carefully think about, you're going to plan how to buy a field. People don't just buy fields. People plan to buy fields. If you're not thinking about it, if you're not coming up with a plan of how to accomplish it, you're not going to do it. Hard things don't just accidentally happen. Big deals don't just close themselves. You have to think about the process of closing a big deal. And so if you want to use the thought power that you have, do any of you have any time that's filled up with low thought requirement activities? Anybody have any chores that consume significant time but leave your mind free to consider things? Are you able to listen to, act to things while you do that work? If you do, fill your mind with information that you need in order to develop your skills. Learn how to do deals. Learn how to buy real estate. Learn how to buy a business. Learn how to do those things. Listen to resources. Consider it. As you're thinking about those things, it will seem less and less crazy to you. Some of you are terrified by the idea of buying a piece of land. Some of you yawn at the thought because it's nothing compared to the ridiculous risks you've taken in your life. Those things are different levels of risk-taking. And so you want to grow in your ability to take risks because as you consider how to buy capital assets, you will find it easier and easier. The other thing is, it will make you have a desire to put profits aside. If all you think about are consumables and you never think about capital goods, guess where the magnetic draw of your dollars will be? The things to consume. But if you think about capital goods and how to acquire them and how to use them, your desires and your draw will be to take the money that you have and figure out how to save it and put it into capital goods that produce money. So she considers, she carefully plans, she gives thought to a field and buys it. From her profits, from the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. Someone here asked me, where do these profits come from? The profits come from the revenues that are coming from the household generally and the careful management of it, saving money for managing it well, and then the work of the hands, the work of the hands. 
the contribution of the wife and the people and things she manages makes capital available so that she can plant a vineyard. Now, the planting of the vineyard is a separate activity from the buying of the field. You can buy a field and it can be empty. No vines. Buying the vines and planting them is a whole other matter. It's sort of like buying land for a factory versus having a factory on it. You can also have a factory building and no machines. The vines are sort of the machines, the capital producing assets that have to be cared for. And so if you think about this, this is laying out the buying of the field and also the setting of the field up to be a profitable agricultural business. So this is real estate deals and its ongoing business formation and operation. This is within the realm of what a wife can and should do. So the developing of a plan involves the study of business and business plans. I wanna, I'm not going to talk about the detail that I've got written out here. I wanted to point you guys to thinking about a few things in terms of setting goals, resources, or budgets, and then timelines. Here's one of the dangers. If you start to think about these things, you find yourself a year into learning about them and you're not doing anything, start to set yourself a timeline for when you want to accomplish something. You, you begin, that's fine. You just start consuming the information. After a while, you've been stewing on it for a while, you're thinking about it, and you're not doing anything, set yourself a timeline. Come up with a plan. Talk to your husband about a timeline for stuff you want to do so that you can actually start to make progress. So, we got the planning. There's the capital formation from the profits that are generated. And there's this looking for a good field that's worth buying. These are all activities that are laid out here. So I want to point a book out to you, and I didn't put it on here, but Personal MBA does a really good job of laying out the basic outline of a business plan, Personal MBA. So Personal MBA is a book that talks about the different elements of business, and it points to other books. It's not the best book ever written, but it's the most comprehensive single business book I'm aware of, and summarizes and organizes it well. So I would encourage you to take a look at Personal MBA as a way of thinking about business stuff. It's available as an audiobook. So start thinking about those things and open up your eyes to business opportunities. Now, here's one of the dangers of doing these things. You can ignore your children and you can ignore your husband. The big things that you have to remember are that husbands are your first priority, wives, and children are your second priority, wives. And so if you find that as opposed to serving the household that these things become the thing that you're serving or they become the thing where you are becoming your own head of house, you're doing it wrong. So verse 16 is about bringing these things into the estate, managing them well so that you can serve your husband better and serve your children better. And the only way you can do that effectively is if you're not just filling all of your time, but you're delegating things or paying to have things done. So that's why managing services and managing ongoing expenses well is so necessary. Whether you have a business or not right now, you are paying people to do some things for you. 
analyze those and determine which ones are a good use of money and which activities you're doing with your time that are a waste of your time that you ought to be paying somebody to do. Doing that allows you to have higher and higher uses of your time and money. Notice this is calling the woman to do these things. I want to reemphasize that. This is not in any way non-feminine. What this is, is it empowers the man to be able to go into public service. The competent management of the estate and of the children by a wife allows a man to have more freedom to go into public service. Verse 17. Het. She girds herself with strength and strengthens her arms. Chagara. That's girds. So she girds. So that's the initial part. So girding is the idea of preparing yourself to be able to do work. You gird up your loins, you gird up something, you tighten up clothing to make it so you can do action. There is this tightening up that occurs for the sake of action. And she also strengthens her arms. So the girding up is preparing for action, and she does it by preparing herself with strength. How do you prepare yourself for strength? Like How do you get strength so that you are ready to take action? Is this literally talking about girding up so like there's no application to us because we don't have to gird things anymore because there's no like clothing that we have to gird up? I guess you might have to hike up in order to like move fast sometimes. Right, ladies? Is this still a thing? This is a real thing. So I don't think that's what we're talking about. The point is the girding up of self with strength means you are strong because you stay ready. You do activity. By constant work, you are ready to do work. And furthermore... She strengthens her arms. That's They're ready for work. Now, I want to suggest to you that this is actually a statement about physical well-being. This is about physical work. This is about physical training. This is the idea of retaining good physical shape. Men, I think it is our duty, we are told by Paul, that physical training is of some, <laughs> some value. doesn't mean zero value, it's some value. And also, the Proverbs 31 woman is said to strengthen herself. Men need to be ready to be able to do business and do combat. And women need to be ready to do business. And so this being strong gives you more energy, the ability to carry on. We look at this and, again, in contrast with the Victorian woman, we think of the woman as weak. And that we, we go to the Bible and we say, oh, she's the weaker vessel. See, that's justified there. And the weaker vessel has to do with not the idea that she's just physically weak. It has to do with the idea of a needing to preserve her, that there's a beauty where if we don't guard and cherish women, there's a destruction of the distinctiveness of the woman. It is the case that men are physically stronger than women. But that point of that verse about the idea of the woman is the weaker vessel has to do with the guarding and cherishing of women. So, men and women together need to be strong in order to do work. There's an emotional strength, and there's a physical strength. What we see in vibrant Protestant societies, like look at the bottom of page 6, the Dutch, the Swiss, the Northern Germans, the French Reformed women, Scottish Presbyterian women, British and American Puritan women, 
They were all known for being smart, sharp negotiators, candid and clear communicators, and hardworking women. There are all sorts of letters from Spanish soldiers in the 1600s when they're trying to annihilate the Protestants. And there, there's this like 12-year ceasefire where there's a significant interaction between these Spanish and various Catholic forces that are in the Netherlands. And their general expression about the women is that they don't like the women because the women talk back too much and the women read too much and the women are found in the marketplaces negotiating and these are all things that these Spanish soldiers don't like. It's an excellent capturing of the historical reality of what Protestant women do. They read and they argue and they do business. And they also take great care of their homes and are known for hospitality. And that behavior together of the fact that there is a significant interaction, it requires strength to do all of those things because those all take a lot of energy. I'm very grateful for the strength and consistency of my own wife. You all know how frequently we have events of hospitality. That is because she is able and willing over and over and over and over again to prepare things and have things occur in our house. It's far easier for me to do than for her. She prepares that and deals with it. I have to do certain things, but that is a difficult thing. It requires strength for her to consistently do that. And so she's the one that's maintaining the ability of the home to be a place where we can have that level of hospitality. There's a really good book called Feminists and Popes. I think we have some over there. And one of the things that that goes over is how in the Middle Ages, the idea of womanhood was very different from the Protestant view of womanhood. The Protestant view of womanhood is well manifested in the wives of reformers. And the wives of reformers... One of the things that's great about Katie Luther is she had to deal with a husband who would basically give everything away until they would go into poverty. Right? Luther was famous for just giving things away. And Katie Luther had to actually make sure that they could feed the kids and all the boarders that Martin kept bringing into the house and keep things running. So she was a serial entrepreneur. She started a brewery. And when her brewery was not very effective, when she was not selling a lot of beer... She started to figure out why, and she went around to some of the famous German tap houses that were around to ask them to taste her beer and to ask them what was the thing that people thought was better about the beer in the other German tap houses. And she became known for being able to reproduce some of the best-tasting beers in Germany. She did this with a number of different business activities, and Martin Luther loved to call her his rib, Katie. I have my own rib, Katie, and I'm delighted to have been able to steal that from Luther. Now, the idea that a wife is by your side working with you. Your wife is a helpmeet. Your wife is to be protected by you men and she is to feel as though she is empowered to take risks knowing that she has your shelter to fall back to. You provide a covering And you make it so that she is able to do things. And she's not more afraid of you than of the consequences of failure. The the consequences of the failure, the loss of the money or the time, she will feel bad for. And men, you need to encourage her to try again. You need to encourage her to try again. So she strengthens her arms for action. She's working out. 
there's doing work, there's being ready for action, arising early so that you can do work early. And these are all things that tend towards the encouragement of doing things well. There is a temptation in the nighttime, because you can't be as productive, to waste time. If you rise early, guess what you're likely to be at night? Tired. And if you're tired at night, you're more likely to fall asleep at night. Early to bed, early to rise, something or other. So, that idea of making your time available in the day so you can give your strength to working. Go to point 41 on page 7. Doing work to improve your own estate and to develop skills and independence is life-giving. Independence for your own household. People talk about the independent woman, the independent man. No. Your household should be an independent unit. The household is the, is the ministry of health care, welfare, and education. You want the independence of the household. And women, you are working to develop that independence of the household alongside your husband's. You build it up in a partnership. Wives, if you take on responsibility and solve problems, it spurs your man to want to do more with you. As you both take on an attitude of dominion, and rather than complaining or irritation, you both focus on working the problem, then you will find that you are both a delight to work with, and you will work more and more together, and you will become more and more a fierce kingdom with a fearsome king and queen. Okay, so here's, I want you to imagine this. Here's, the, here's the, the thing, the life I want you to think about. Imagine you work and it feels like you are doing recreation. Imagine you work and it feels like you are doing recreation. Imagine you can work more effectively with your spouse than by yourself. And the same for them. Imagine you enjoy working side by side. Imagine he leads well and she follows well. Does anybody here find that to be ugly? Anybody here think, no, that's not what I want? It is the desirable estate. There are all sorts of thorns and thistles and strife that come from trying to figure out how to do those things. You have to work through them. That attitude of work the problem, help to solve the problem together to extend dominion and reduce your irritation and complaining, that allows for that. If you instead, whenever there's a problem, are irritated and complain and don't work the problem, but instead work the person near you, then it's going to make it so that you don't feel like it's recreation don't think you can do more with your spouse than without them. Don't enjoy working by their side. You will find that the man doesn't lead well and the woman does not follow well. So consider that. Now, verse 18. She perceives that her merchandise is good and her lamp does not go out by night. That word perceives is, is based upon the word taste. Okay, so there's different words for perceive. Some of them are based upon sight. Some of them are based upon handling or whatever. This one's rooted in the word taste. This has to do with the enjoyment of the prophets. That's the point of this one. 
is lost, sadly, in the English translation. So New King James here has lost what is, I think, the central idea. She tastes her profit that it is good. And her lamp does not go out by night. So, when people see the lamp, a lot of times they think, oh, she's working late into the night. Um, she rises early. Does she also work late? Because I, mean, I thought that God said that he gives sleep to his beloved. The point is not that she's working throughout the night. The point is, and this is actually a Hebraism, this idea of the lamp not going out by night. It, first of all, refers to the idea of the temple. There's the lamp in the temple that goes all night. So this idea is that her witness does not go out, and she has the resources to keep things going, keep things safe, and keep things beautiful. It's not that she's working late into the night. She's rising early. She's sleeping. So she tastes the goodness of her work, and she experiences the goodness of the work and the goodness of the fruit of her work. She sees doing entrepreneurial activity as good and enjoys the blessings of the prophet along with her whole house. She has resources to make the home light up because of the prosperity brought by her work. She does not lose her insight, her lamp doesn't go out, or see her house governed in darkness. There's not an application of man-made law. It's the law of God that is applied in her house. These are all things that are pointed to by the idea of the light. So the lamp is about witness and resources. Even in the darkness, the home of the wife of valor is a lighthouse. We live in a dark culture. We live in a dark time. Women of valor, you have a powerful opportunity to make your homes a place of light. And men, you provide the frame for that home. You provide structure for it. You can make it so that there is morning and evening worship. You can make it so that there is a steady rule of law in your house. You can disciple. You can wash your wife in the word. You help to create that. But women, if you don't beautify it, it will still just be a frame. It is necessary for the vine to grow in order for that frame to be beautiful. It is necessary for it to flourish and for it to bloom. You are beautifiers. There's an opportunity to fill your houses with light. Proverbs 24, verses 3 to 4 says, Through wisdom a house is built, and by understanding it is established. By knowledge the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. Right, the building of the house, the establishing of the house, that maintaining of that structure and frame, that is one thing. But filling the room, filling the rooms with precious and pleasant riches. There is the great story of hospitality of Solomon. When you read about him receiving the Queen of Sheba, and her engaging with his household. There's a display of incredible hospitality. The hospitality there is made possible by the wise rule that exists there. So, 
the enjoyment. If you are wise, women, you are wise for yourself. You will enjoy it. You will taste of the fruit of that wisdom. Your house will also be blessed, but you will enjoy it. Verse 19 She stretches out her hands to the distaff, and her hand holds the spindle. So the forearm, the hand here, is yadah. It's it's the it's the forearm. It's the hands reaching out. It's not so much about like the fingers. It's not the palm. It's the idea of the hands going out to do work. It's this significant engagement. It's the extending out of the of the hands. So it's a stronger thing. This isn't just picking up a small object with the hands. The idea is, is the hands going out in a sense of strength to the distaff. Now, the distaff is a disc for spinning. And what you do with a distaff and spindle is you have a disc that you spin and you have basically... If you have a stick, for example, and you put a bunch of wool on the end of it, okay, you take pieces of that wool and connect it to a spinning device and then spin it, it's going to twist that wool into yarn. And so the process of pulling wool from a cluster of wool and having it spin so that you have this yarn that's getting longer and longer as you're pulling it down and it's getting spun so that it's, it's twisted together, that's the idea. This is a a piece of work that is not particularly difficult, but it takes time. It takes some skill to do it swiftly. And it's sort of looking for every opportunity to do work. This is an easy thing to grab. She's got real estate deals and vineyard planting operations going on. And at the same time, she is grabbing little chores as there's opportunity. And you can do this stupidly. You can do things that make you basically no money and take lots of time. And that is a bad idea. We just talked about the need to delegate and to remove things so you have time that's available. But if you have some spare time and you're not sure what to do, you don't despise the opportunity to do a lower value, useful piece of work. If that's the best thing available to you, do it. If that's the most useful thing, do it. And so the willingness to do work that is low value when it's the best thing to do. She stretches out her arms to the distaff, and her hand holds the spindle. So she takes her hands, she puts them to work. She herself is working, and she has the gear, distaff and spindle, and the skill. She's grown used to being able to pull the material and to be able to spin it effectively to use productive resources. Now this goes back up to looking for wool and flax. Okay, she looks for that, and here now she's willing to put it to work. She's willing to take that stuff and put it to work. So she looks for something where she can get equipment or resources to make her time profitable, and she puts her arm to the work. Now this would not have been a low-value piece of work in the past. A piece of clothing would typically be very expensive at this time period. So remember where Jesus has uh, that piece of cloth and the soldiers don't want to tear it when they're crucifying him because it's all sewn as one piece. They don't want to tear it. 
because they view it as a very valuable item. It's just a piece of clothing, and they go, wow, tearing this thing would be a waste because it's really valuable. It's an economically valuable thing. Clothing was expensive because it took forever to make it because you had to make the yarn or the thread by hand. And so that process of making yarn, making thread, was a very labor-intensive process. And so the, you know, the hourly wage value or whatever of doing this could have been much higher then than we would think of it as being now. But the point is, there's looking for productive work to do. She stretches out her hand to the distaff, and her hand holds the spindle. All this work getting listed out, and it begins to feel like this is an absurd or impossible goal. But this is not. It is the good life. This is historically the way people have lived. They have worked almost all the time. We live in a time where we have more free time to not work than any people since the fall. We have so much free time, and we feel like we are busier than ever, right? Everybody, all the polls, like, do you feel like you have any free time? No. Are you really busy? Yes, I'm really busy. Everybody's super busy. Everybody's amazingly busy, so busy. The busiest, right? There's so much busyness. But we have more tools of productivity and cheaper ability to do stuff than humankind has ever had. It is very easy to just get by. You can, with relatively limited effort, just get enough stuff to consume and have lots and lots and lots of free time. Doing things that are worth doing, we have more resources and time availability than any humans ever. Do you believe the lie that you need a ton of time to spend on entertainment in order to be happy? I will bet you, if you track how much time you spend on entertainment for the next couple of weeks, and then you cut it in half for the next couple of weeks after that, and you track your happiness during both times, I'll bet you you find the time with less time entertainment happier. If you find time to work, work satisfies. It's enjoyable. It creates useful things. It changes the frame of mind that you have. It makes you more active. Productive work is the good use of time. Don't run away from this image of the constant work, of the the tendency towards finding productivity to do. This is not an impossible ideal. The impossible ideal is perfectly picking the most valuable thing all the time. That is the impossible ideal. But the idea of finding something useful to do, there's a lot of useful things to do. You can find useful things to do if you just look around a little bit. There are lots of useful things to do. Finding the best thing, that's hard. That's hard. So if you find useful things to do and get rid of time wasters and get rid of things that are filthy that draw away your attention, you will find yourself much happier and much more energized. You will find yourself sleeping better. I said this to your children a little bit ago. Now I'm saying it to you. This is the effect. So I encourage you to think about that. And why does Proverbs 31 spend so much time, women, talking about productive economic work for you? It's because you are made to be a helper for a man in the work of dominion. Helping in what? Helping in dominion. Which is principally economic activity. Okay, we have to know God. If you don't know God, your economic activity is useless. That's the most basic piece. 
but then you spend most of your time doing economic activity. That is the call. You fill the world with space that's habitable for man, with useful things for work. You fill the world with people, and you fill those people with the knowledge of God. There's a lot of work there. That life is the useful and good life. Verse 20. She extends her hand to the poor. She reaches out her hands to the needy. Okay, so she extends her hand, the palm to the poor, and she reaches out her forearm to the needy. This is that same word as earlier. But the palm here, kappa, the palm is extended out to the poor. What does that remind you of? If you give your palm to somebody, what is that? It's a handshake. She gives the sign of fellowship to the poor. And then she gives her strength. She does work to help them, to lift them up, to care for them. Because she cares for the lowly. The idea of being able to give charitable care, if you do not work hard, if you do not have resources, you cannot help anybody. You can't. And so this ability to help and the ability to give hospitality and generosity comes from productive work. She extends help. She works to help get other people on their feet. She's not just laying burdens on people saying you need to do this and this and this and this. She helps them to deal with the burdens. But remember this. Someone has to carry burdens. It's, it's very nice to say I don't want to just lay burdens on people and just try to help. But somebody's got to carry the burdens. And we're all responsible to try to carry our own burdens. And then you're supposed to try to have excess resources. And when you get excess resources, you should use them in part to help other people carry their burdens. But unless some people are carrying their burdens, there are no excess resources to help other people to carry theirs. Does that make sense? You see the need for work? There's a lot to do, and there are many problems. What is lacking cannot be numbered. What is crooked cannot be made straight, except by the power of God. Only who rely upon God, who knows all that's lacking, and has counted it, he's numbered it, to provide. And who rely upon God to make things straighten out. He fixes them. And so we look around and feel like there's too much to do and not enough resources and we can rely upon God to provide it but we are called to do work now verse 21 she's not afraid of snow for her household for all her household is clothed with scarlet she helps other people guess what else she does she is prepared she's not afraid she does the work of being prepared She's not afraid of hard times, snow, because she trusts God. And she's not afraid of hard work. She's working hard in the good times. So she's prepared. So this is a, a verse about, this is the Proverbs 31 prepper. Okay, this is, this is the preparedness woman. So let's think about what we have here. She's not afraid of snow for her household. Great. She's not afraid of cold. She's not afraid of a time where you can't grow crops. She's not afraid of that. In addition to that, there's a reason why. Because all her household is clothed with scarlet. Now, I don't know about you, but I am not aware of the heating properties of red dye. So what is this about? 
Well, first, the idea of red dye would be that you're only going to use fine wool. Flax doesn't really take dyes. And so wool would be the common thing to actually be dyed. So linen, not accepting dye well, red dye well. Wool takes dye well, and it lasts for a long time. And if you're going to dye the wool, you're going to use wool that is thicker. You're going to have thicker yarned wool. So you're going to have something that is designed to last for a while. It's going to be thicker, so it's going to deal with cold better. And so it's a well-made, thick piece of clothing. And it's dyed scarlet or red. So what you've got is an expensive piece of clothing, quality clothing. And so she is prepared. It's a symbol that points to the general category of preparedness. Fine wool would keep them dignified, safe, comfortable, warm, and ready for action rather than fearful and endangered. So the clothing of a family, that by itself is a symbol for this general preparedness. Verse 22, she makes tapestry for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and wool dyed with purple. It's purple. But again, purple is something where you're going to have, this is going to be wool, and it's going to be dyed with purple, so it's going to be thicker, higher quality wool. So she has good clothing, and this first part, the idea that she is, she makes tapestry. Okay, it's marbadine, tapestries. She makes tapestry for herself. Tapestry, the wording here is sort of referring to a type of cloth, that is soft like bedding. And so what is this about? She has nice clothing, so she's just rich? Is that the point? Well, that's a part of it. The idea that she has nice clothing because there's resources, because she's working hard. But the idea here is that the woman is beautifying. She makes for herself things that are beautiful. She seeks to wear something that... This is not some like crazy piece of clothing that is uncomfortable to the touch or difficult. It invites the touch of the husband. It's modest. It's beautiful. She beautifies herself with fine linen and purple wool with elegant, modest, comfortable, practical economy. Well-made and dignity-oriented clothing. This is elegant and honorable economy. This is not crazy clothing with a bunch of gold on it. This is not garbage. It's dyed. It's, it's clothing with color that is well made. And that is the idea. That she is looking to beautify herself. Verse 23. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. Now, you might go like, where's the husband, right? Hey, this husband is elder qualified. This husband is elder qualified. What does that mean? We've studied those qualifications a lot. He's a hard-working, well-ordered man. He's wise. He's prudent. He is serious-minded. He leads his family well. He leads his wife well. He is a man who keeps covenant with his wife. He leads his children well. He leads servants well. This is a man who is an honorable man. Her husband is known in the gates. And he is not using the fact that his wife works hard to go be lazy. 
He works with her, and when they got to a place where they had sufficient resources, and he became known for his quality of work and manhood, he was nominated, examined, elected, and ordained to public rule. He looked for public service to do. When things were running really well in his house, he used the excess of resources there to engage in public service. Her husband is known in the gates. He's not just a newbie in the gates. He's known there. He has a reputation there. He is somebody who is known in the gates. And notice it's not just the gates of the local town, the smallest local court. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. We're talking about higher courts. This guy has made it to the local court, and he has been nominated by his peers to go to a higher court. He is known by the elders of the land. Perhaps he's a member of the 70, the highest court. Perhaps he's simply known there and sits in some sort of a regional court, a tribal court. But he's in one of the higher courts. So he's not just a one in ten man. He's a one in fifty, one in a hundred, one in a thousand type of man. And these kind of women are rare. In the city of Phoenix, there are as many people here now as there were in all of Britain at the time of the Westminster Assembly. Populations are roughly the same. When you think about the 1860s, sorry, the 1660s, okay? The 1640s, you have the English Civil War. The Puritans overthrow a tyrannical government, remove that government, kill that king, seek to establish a godly republic. When the crown is restored and Charles II comes back as a covenant breaker who swears and lies that he's not going to persecute the Puritans, by the time he comes back, there are thousands of Puritan ministers in England, in Scotland, Wales, and Ireland. And in the, 18, in the 1660s, he issues an order where he now requires anybody who is not willing to do the man-made ceremonies in the Book of Common Prayer must be ejected from their pulpits. There are more than 2,000 Puritan ministers who would not put on a surplus in order to keep their estate, to keep their public office, to keep preaching in places they've been preaching for two decades. These men wouldn't put on a robe and a white collar. That is how many of them were willing to not do that. There are hundreds others, thousands, that compromise to stay in their preaching positions. In a population the size of the population of Phoenix, thousands of ministers who were unwilling to compromise in even that small degree. How many ministers do you think are that principled about the Word of God in Phoenix, Arizona right now? Do you think we could get 2,000 that wouldn't put on a robe and a collar to keep their income and station? The need for men who are willing to serve is so great. The level of chaos and civilizational collapse that we are in, we don't appreciate it. We think, well, Walmart's, Walmart's pretty well stocked. Right? I mean, like, I can get like 12 varieties of creamer. 
So I feel like civilization is still going okay. But the aqueduct still ran when Rome was collapsing. The food supplies kept coming. Civilizational collapse, sure, it can be there's no food in the store. It can also just be the decay of everything that you cared about. There is a need for men who are known in the gates, who sit among the elders of the land. We live in a time where those men are rare and precious, and the women who are Proverbs 31 women are rare and precious. Every household that we can see in good order with a mature man and a mature woman is a rallying point where enormous amounts of good can be done. The gates are the place of public business in the courts. The husband has his house in order and he is able to get his house in order in large part because of the cooperation of the wife. Their teamwork is powerful to get a house well ordered. Their mutual honoring of each other causes the house to be a place of honor and to display honor outwardly in hospitality and in work. Women, this Proverbs 31 woman, by definition, if her husband is an elder in the gates, has the qualifications of an officer's wife. That means she is pious, not a malicious gossip, serious-minded, and she believes the confessed Reformed faith. Those are the qualifications of an officer's wife. To be pious, not a malicious gossip, serious-minded, and to believe the confessed Reformed faith. I call you to be wise and to engage in the active life that's laid out here as well as the life of contemplation, of wisdom, of thinking. The emphasis of this text has been on the woman as a woman of valor. But the woman wisdom was earlier in the text. This is not a contrast between the idea of a life of thought and a life of work and activity and social interaction. They all go together. The Christian is a prophet, priest, king. The Christian is called to think deeply, to maintain holy relationship, and to work hard. And these are not at odds. We are not monks. We are not hermits. We do not believe in the papist doctrine that work is curse or a result of curse. Working and thinking are not at odds. Working hard causes you to have to think. Dealing with problems in people's lives makes you have to study. And teaching to other people makes you have to study more deeply. And for your teaching to be effective, you have to work in a way that you don't look like a hypocrite. You have to have relationships that are maintained in the process. Verse 24. She makes linen garments and sells them and supplies sashes for the merchants. The same skills that she can provide her house with makes it so that she's able to do business with these things externally. The skills that are useful for you are useful for other people. And as you seek to develop your ability to provide for yourself and to care for your own house, 
you will find those same skills are in demand from other people. You can train other people to do them. You can sell those things to other people. But the making of the linen garments and selling them, supplying sashes for the merchants, one part is manufacturing and selling. The other one could be reselling, buying from other people. She's like a merchant ship. She looks for deals, and then she sells again. Doing business creates opportunities to do more business. This is industry to make trade. Middlemen become her servants. You go, well, how am I going to do all this trading? I've got to go everywhere. Well, Jeff Bezos is your middleman. He made a website lots of people go to. You can sell stuff on. Other people can too. Google is your middleman. You can use them to make yourself easily searchable. There are all sorts of middlemen that are useful for you. And so the industry of other people, other merchants wanting to make money, become your servants because you can use them to sell the things that you create. You don't have to do all the traveling. You can use their service. Many women alike should avoid being away all the time from home. There are duties of rootedness that are valuable. And if you have opportunities that require lots of moving, then take your wife and children with you. If it's too dangerous for them to go, then why are you doing it? Is it really necessary? Is it temporary? Think back to verse 19 about the distaff and spindle. This again relates to them in terms of the industry and the selling. So, there's a continued relationship with the later verses here. We'll pick those up as we go into next, next time, next week. You can see the themes that continue to be pushed. Industry, useful work, the development of skill, effective management of resources and time. There is a lot to do. And we as Christians have a tendency to minimize these things. Whenever we talk about the applications of details, there's a tendency for people to yell legalist. The law of God is the thing that teaches us good from evil. If a legalist is defined by one who looks to the law of God to know what is good and what is evil, guilty is charged. If, however, the idea is that this is man-made law, then where would we find God's law? If the charge is instead that we're seeking to be righteous by keeping the law, then we would certainly have sought to make it more keepable. This law is not keepable. We are not able perfectly to obey it. But it is the life that God has taught us to lead. It is the good life. This is not legalism in any sense except for the idea that we look for the law of God to teach us what is good and what is evil. And so this life is a strenuous life. It is a fulfilling life. It is a good life. A life with resources and service and relationships where people know that you have done things, where you have taught them things and been taught by them, where you have given them things and received things. This is a life worth living. Comments, questions, and objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights.